0: This podcast is produced by Clarence Valley Community Church. If you benefit from our ministry and you would like to support us, details can be found at our website, cvcc.com.au. There you can also find out more details about our church. We're going to be reading our sermon text this morning out of 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 3. And we'll probably go through to the end. Of the text. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain people not to teach different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, That the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whoever else is, or whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel. Of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though I felt fir, though firmly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love. ...that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance... ...that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners... ...of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason... ...that in me, as the foremost... ...Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience... ...as an example to those... ...who were to believe in Him for eternal life to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecy previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and good conscience by rejecting some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we want to ask today that as we approach your word, that you would speak to us, that the Spirit would truly be at work, and that you would not leave us the same. Help us, Lord, to have great confidence in your word, and to hold fast to those truths and to defend them as they are needed. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, it's kind of weird when I come to this text, Uh, I kind of delayed for quite a number of years, even though Timothy has so much to say to the church, because it is an epistle written by Paul to the church about the way it should conduct its faith. But it bears my name, this is the book that I am named after, and so for me it is weird to be reading a book that constantly has my name in it, but there is so much in it that we need to learn. Paul's heart here is really interesting. Um, often we think about doctrine as something that divides. There, there are those doctrines that keep people out of the church or keep people out of our church. But very often we forget the doctrine actually unites as well. It's, it's something that holds the church together. Here we are, 2023 today, 2,000 years roughly since Jesus Christ was born, and we are believing, teaching, holding to things that the church has held to for 2,000 years. If you think about that, it's not only here in 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 this place where we have unity. It's not only with those people who would normally be here that we have unity. It's not only with the Christian churches out there that we have unity or that we're supposed to have unity with. It's actually with a church that's been around for 2,000 years. Paul spoke about the fact that that Christ being the chief cornerstone, the apostles laid a foundation, and the rest of us have a job to build upon the foundation that was handed down to us. We're no longer building the ground floor. The ground floor has been laid. We 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 have so much that's been given to us, yes, by people like the apostle Paul. Yes, by people like Timothy, the son of the faith of Paul, but also every Christian that has ever gone before us. Think about this right now. Some of the doctrines that unite us with the ancient church. Jesus, as the only Lord and Savior of the world. The fact that he came and that he lived a perfect life. And the fact that this perfect life meant that he was the, the spotless lamb who was able to go to the cross as a sacrifice for sin. And that he actually died under the hands of Pontius Pilate and the Romans and the Jewish accusers. And that he rose again from the dead. And that this was witnessed not only by 12 men that were selected by Jesus Christ, but it was by witnessed by over five people. And that this was enough for us to be saved. We we, we weren't able to do it ourselves, but we needed Jesus Christ to come and do it and provide another way, a way that came through faith. This, in Paul's time, was in threat. Not necessarily that Jesus was a savior. Everybody agreed in that. But that perhaps, yes, you needed Jesus, but, but maybe you needed something more. Maybe you needed some sort of mystical knowledge that would come through uh, some sort of Greek philosophy. Or maybe you needed some law. You just need a, a little bit of legal code as well along the side. Maybe some, some, purifi- pur- some purification washing. Maybe some, some abstaining from certain foods. Maybe by taking on circumcision. There were definitely those who were coming in. And so Paul's main thrust to Timothy was that Timothy was to defend the faith because people needed the faith to be defended. What would happen to us today? What would have happened if the church in this early stages had even gone off a little bit? We all know how lines work. If, you, if you've got two lines that are running parallel to one another and then one goes off just one degree, it's not going to take too long before there's a massive divergence. We stand on the faith that Christianity has always had because Paul and the other apostles and people like Timothy were so insistent that the church and its doctrine needed to be defended. And then we need to ask ourselves the question, do we have a place in that as well? And I think we do. We have a place in that as well. You have a place. It's not only the elders of this church. It's all of us. All of us have a place and a role to play in the defending of the doctrine because we don't want ourselves or anybody to come after us, our children, those who would be discipled by us. We don't want them to go off into some weird divergent tangent or to be focusing upon those things which breed controversy. Let's have a look at our text. Let's see if we can see what it is that I have been saying in the text. He says, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies which promote speculation, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Uh, we have a stewardship, we have this thing that they've been entrusted with, Timothy has been entrusted with, the church in Ephesus has been entrusted with, it's these, these doctrines that we've been talking about already this morning. There's a stewardship, and there's something, therefore, to be cared for. And, and for, for, for Timothy, this was his role in the place of Paul, as one who had been discipled by the Apostle Paul, and had become like a, a son in the faith. He wanted Timothy to make sure that those people in the church that were trying to teach something different would be corrected. And there's always a tendency. Uh, these myths that were there, that this, this idea about uh, the, the Greek philosophies that were starting to come in, this is likely what he's talking about. Some of them were that it didn't really matter what we did in the body because after all, our body is fading away. It doesn't matter what we do in this. It only matters what we do spiritually. Or endless genealogies. The, the Jews were perhaps caught up in these things, trying to ground themselves in some sort of boasting place. This was my lineage. I come from this priest. I come from this teacher. Look at my heritage. You can see how these things would promote controversy. We don't want to promote controversy. We don't want to be promoting those things which will breed contention. We want unity but we want unity around the truth. It's very tempting for those people who want to come across as bright and intelligent to to come up with all kinds of weird and wonderful things. Uh, I've said it again and I've said it before. uh, Intelligent people make all kinds of problems in this world because they tend to overcomplicate things. The Christian faith should not be overcomplicated. It should be one of those things that can be accepted by the, the youngest child. It's easy to say, I know Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I know that he died for my sins and that I rose again from the dead. And yet, for those who really want to go deep, we don't have to go off into weird and wonderful speculation. There's more than enough in the text of scripture to keep us occupied for the entirety of our lives. Trust me, I have a degree in this thing and it only makes me ask more questions. There's more than enough here. We don't have to go off into weird and wonderful tangents. In fact. If you think about the divergence of the church today, nine times out of ten, it's because there's been this one little thing that's come along that has become a focus to all other things and has and drawn people away. We don't want that. We want a church that comes and works together over the core of the gospel and is, and is there with a good conscience. I think it's interesting because when we start talking about false teachers, there might be a tendency to think that Paul is angry. He's not. He's not angry. He's not in hatred. Rather, he says this in verse 5 he says, The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. If a person is swerving from the truth or if they're breeding contention within the church, the most loving thing that you can do is go alongside that person and say, brother, sister, this is what the church has always believed and taught. You need to correct, you need to to actually come back and and celebrate those core doctrines. You need to come back and celebrate those things that the church has always taught and believed. You don't want to be the kind of person who's breeding contention within the church. Rather, we all have a mission. We all have a, jo- a job. So this certainly doesn't mean that, that there isn't place for individuality. All of us have individual gifts. All of us have particular things and bents. And within the, the, the beauty of the gospel, we have as much a space as we need to express our faith. I think it's really interesting that nowhere in the the text of Scripture does it say you have to sing this many songs or uh, they have to be of this particular style or "Your your sermon length should go for exactly 45 minutes. Notice I didn't say 30 minutes. Roger's not here today there's a lot of room and people can express themselves and and I've like when I've been to India when I've been to Myanmar when I've been to Cambodia the beautiful thing is is that all of those churches teach the same thing that we do but they celebrate it in a different way Cambodia was very laid back India makes your ears bleed that's the reality and so we don't have to go looking for weird and wonderful things. There is a lot of space to express ourselves. But we need to keep what is the main thing, the main thing. This was going on today as it is back then. It says, certain people swerving from the truth have wandered away from, from into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertion. It does seem to be that the main problem that Paul is focusing upon here is those people who have an insistence upon adding elements of the law for salvation. The thing that's really interesting to me about these people who are often called the Judaizers is if you think about Israel's history and the fact that even from the very moment when Yahweh himself dictates or writes the law of God on stone, right from that very moment, Israel couldn't keep the law. And and the law would only ever become this accuser. Israel would be accused constantly because they couldn't keep God's law, they couldn't keep faith, they couldn't keep the specifications of the covenant. And so they would fail before God, and then what would God do? I think this is interesting, because we often think that God, even in the Old Testament, was a God of, of of law. I will only accept you if you keep my law. But Yahweh was never like that. Yahweh revealed his will. He revealed his code. He said, this is my covenant. You need to keep it. And if you keep it, it'll go well with you. You'll stay in the land. You'll prosper. Everything will be fine. You'll have peace. But when they failed... It was always Yahweh who was the initiator. He would come by His grace and His mercy, which we read about in the psalm this morning. He would be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and bring them back. He would send them off for a time to be disciplined. But then He was always the one who would act and bring them back to faith. And so those people who insist that Christians need to keep certain elements of the law in order to be saved are putting them back under the exact same curses which led to the judgment of Israel. We don't want to be part of that. Now, certainly the law has a place for believers. It does reveal to us the will of God. And those of us who have been saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ want to know what it is that God is pleased by, don't we? We want to do those things which are pleasing to God. We want our lives to be a living sacrifice for him. Paul does say in verse 8 that we know that the law is good and that when if one uses it lawfully, it's good. This is true. We want to be able to know that this good law leads us to the ways of God. But I think it's interesting that he says that we understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but the lawless... And disobedient for ungodly and sinners. This is this is what the law does. This is the the primary use of the law. It's like a mirror. We might think that as we're walking through the world and, and we, we can look at ourselves. As forgetful as we are, I can't. I've been looking at this face for 38 years, and I can't remember the freckles on my face or where they are. We can think about ourselves as being pretty good. And the worst thing we can do then is compare ourselves to other people. If we look around, if we compare ourselves to other people, we might go, you know what, I am pretty good. Look at me. I go to church even on a public holiday. I turn up on Christmas Day when other people go away and, 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 just, and just have a rest. It might be easy to do. I'm preaching to the choir here. But the law does something different. The law says, no, see yourself as you really are. This is, how, this is how God sees you. When we look in the mirror of the law, what we see is ultimately that we are unworthy. We aren't worthy to come to God as we are. If we were to stand before God as we are right now, would we be able to stand before God? That's what the law does. And this is why it's so useful for sinners for those who are disobedient, those who have no interest in God, they can go about this life thinking that they are doing okay as long as they are left to only compare themselves to other people. I don't know if you've ever, you've ever had this conversation with people, but I have, where you, where you start to confront people and say, uh, what do you mean by the fact that you're good? What, is that, what does that mean to you? I've actually had people say to me, well, you know, I'm not Hitler, as if that's the standard. That's not our standard. Our standard is God. God is our standard. Jesus was our standard. And if we look upon him, if we see him we see the one who kept God's law, we see ourselves as we truly are. And this is a beautiful thing because when that happens, when we see ourselves as we truly are, then the law will do the other thing that it's supposed to do and it will drive us to Jesus. That's a good thing. If you see yourselves as you truly are and you see yourself as unworthy and you were driven to Jesus, then you were driven to the fount that will wash you clean. Nothing else can take away the stains of sin but the blood of Jesus. He has actually done enough. And so we, when we leave, read this vice list, this list of sins here, and we're going to, he says, he's talking about sinners, the ungodly, the lawless. He says, those who strike their father and mother. Murderers. The sexually immoral. Men who practice homosexuality enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. We look at that list, and we might feel like we're doing okay. We might go, well, I haven't striked my mum recently. I'm doing okay. But this vice list actually comes out of Deuteronomy. It actually starts a little bit further up. It talks about, in verse 8, we know that the law is good for those who are lawful, understanding that those who, that the law is, good, is not laid down for those who are just, the lawless, the disobedient, the ungodly, the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. All of this is supposed to incorporate the fact that before God is where it starts. It's ultimately before God. We know that this list... Maybe we're not on it. Maybe lies. But really, could we say that our lives have lived in accordance with sound doctrine, with the gospel? The point is, from this list, is that we're not supposed to look upon it and judge others. Within this list, we're supposed to look upon it and see our own failings. Only then can we see that the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which Paul has been entrusted, is beautiful. Nobody, absolutely nobody, wants to take chemo. No one. Why do people take chemo? Because there's a hope that it will save them, that poison might very well save their lives. The gospel of Christ is bitter. It's a bitter truth. When you see the cross, what what is it that you see? Yes, you see the love of God, but you also see the extent to which God had to go to save us. When you look at the cross, you see that God had to go to great lengths. Our sin is so serious that God couldn't simply just let it go or let it be. We see on the cross the curse of sin. We see in the death of Jesus Christ the ultimate cost of our sin. And that can be offensive to people. Imagine going up, like if you go up to tell somebody on the street, you know what, God takes your sin so seriously that somebody had to die in your place. You hear it mocked as cosmic child abuse. It's not cosmic child abuse because Jesus came willingly. But it is offensive when you think about it, that God, in order for you to come to him, somebody had to die in your place. The remedy can only be taken when you realize that the only thing more grievous than Jesus dying is your sin. And then you see it not as offensive, but as beautiful. The fact that jesus would come willingly and take on the punishment laid out by his father for those who would trust in him and to be applied to us by the holy spirit in all of this perhaps we might be actually left thinking that the worst possible sinners are those people therefore who would want to teach false doctrine we're going to look upon the church and we're going to say, uh, who are those people who are least likely then to be saved? We might say it's those people who are going to lead people into falsehood. And I think that's actually why Paul goes to the place where he's about to go. I think that is correct. It's one thing to lead yourself into falsehood. It's another to lead others. Jesus would say, "Of if you do it with the little and the innocent, that it's better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and that you'll throw it into the sea." False doctrine is bad. It's the understatement of the century. But this is why Paul goes here. He's like, if of those people, think about this. He says, I thank him, speaking of Christ, who has given me the strength, Jesus Christ, our Lord, because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, if you want to talk about the ultimate sinner, it's Paul. But here we find hope. Paul's like, you know what? Even those guys who were leading people into falsehood, for them there is grace. And the ultimate example is Paul himself. He stood and held the coats as Stephen was stoned to death for witnessing about Jesus. He approved the death of Christians, the jailing of Christians, the persecution of Christians. And what does Jesus do for Paul? When Paul is on his vehement attack against Christians, when he's going down to Damascus to go and arrest Christians and lock them up and possibly see them put to death, Jesus shows up and says to Paul, 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 why do you persecute me? Jesus reveals himself to Paul. He shows himself to Paul in this great act of mercy, and Paul is blinded for a time, and then where is he led to? I find this the most beautiful thing, because because Jesus could have done it all for Paul right there. In that moment, he could have done it all for Paul, but where does he lead Paul? To the church. He leads him to the church, and it's there where where those where there are some certain members of the church who, who minister to Paul and pray for Paul. And the blinding of his eyes comes off, and it's this, it's this beautiful analogy that Paul had been walking through his life thinking that he saw clearly, but he was blind. And when he sees Jesus Christ before him on the road to Damascus, though he is blinded, now he actually sees because he sees and he understands jesus he knows jesus and his eyes are ultimately healed and then he sees clearly jesus gives paul grace and mercy perhaps paul was the greatest sinner that ever walked the earth this is why this this one verse is the gospel in verse 15 The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Praise God. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul says that he is the worst. He says, of whom I am the foremost. He persecuted the church. And he finds grace. And so I think if you're looking at that vice list, perhaps maybe you're thinking about some times when you've gotten some things wrong. I know that in my past, I've gotten some things wrong. Thinking I was wise, have taught, taught things that were wrong. I was young, I was foolish. We think about those moments and we think, well, how is it that God can be gracious to me? If I look at this vice list, I've been sexually immoral. How can God be gracious to me? Well, the same way that he can to Paul. He's slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love. He is merciful. He is gracious. That's the point of grace. Grace is the fact that we get God's unmerited favor for free because Jesus Christ has paid the cost. It's free to ask because Jesus paid the price. And this is the love that Paul found. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He says, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost Jesus Christ, might be displayed as in his perfect patient as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's like, that's why I'm here. I am a signpost of the mercy of God. You can look on me and you can see the mercy of God. That's why He saved me. And I think all of us can say that. We can say that to our friends, our neighbors, our loved ones. You can say, You don't understand. If you don't love Jesus, you don't understand. He saves sinners because of His grace and His mercy. Look at me. Look at my life. You know me. You know my failures. I found the love of Jesus in his love, in his mercy. This is why I think that Paul then goes into this. He, Whenever Paul talks about the gospel, he often does this. He breaks into praise. Read this, verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. A gospel that is based upon the grace of God leaves glory to no other place. Paul overflows in his expression of praise before God because he knows that only God could have saved him and only God could save any of us. He gets the glory and we get the benefit. So he charges Timothy, ultimately to keep on doing what Paul had entrusted him to do. None of us are the Apostle Paul. None of us are apostles. But we have the apostles within the text of Scripture. We have this letter. This letter wasn't only written to Timothy. It's a periodical. It's something that was meant to be written to Timothy and passed to the church of Ephesus and then passed around. And that's why we have it today. There's a lesson for us in all of this. Not only is Paul instructing Timothy, he's instructing us. He's instructing us on one of the things that we should do. Now, one of the things that comes at the very end is hard. He talks about two people. He talks about, he says, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the final port of call for those who won't respond to the love of God in correction. We have to think about this. Paul handed over false teachers to Satan. This is basically what we call excommunication. This is the final port of call. But even for for Paul here, this is not, I hate these people. I, I don't want anything good to come to them. Rather, he's saying that they might not learn to blaspheme. And for Paul here in the context, to blaspheme is simply to teach those things that are not in accordance with sound doctrine. That's what's come before. And so we need to act in love. We need to learn doctrine. It's not only the responsibility of pastors. We need to be dedicated to the learning of Scripture. We need to know what sound doctrine is. And then each one of us need to be prepared to act in love to make sure that sound doctrine is taught to others, that we disciple people well, and that we are prepared to defend the faith. Right up even to this point here where for those people who want to continue to breed disunity, those people who want to breed contention, where we might have to say to those people, you can't risk the church. Our prayer is that you will ultimately repent and that you will come back into good fellowship. But ultimately, you must learn not to blaspheme. And that's hard. That's not something that we practice very much in the church today. In the old times, it was something called church discipline. where the church themselves would act in a decisive way to make sure that it defended itself. We should know that perhaps at times there will be those people who will come into the church as sheep who are actually wolves, who will want to devour the church and not spare it. Sometimes those people will be church leaders. I want to say that again. Sometimes those people who will come in looking but sh- like sheep but are actually wolves will be leaders within the church. If you don't believe me, go and read Acts 20 where Paul actually instructs the elders of Ephesus, the church that he's writing to here. He talks about the fact that amongst them, some from you, he says, some will rise up who will not spare the sheep. And so, think about this. Think on the fact that we have been saved by the blood of Jesus. All of us needed to receive mercy. All of us still stand before God because of the blood of Jesus. We need to defend that church, this church, in order that that free grace gospel will not be perverted, that barriers will not be put between us and Christ or between other people and Christ. That all people can see that if they feel and they know that they are unworthy, that they can come freely to Jesus. And we need to act decisively to make sure that those core doctrines are not perverted. And that is the responsibility of all of us. Why don't we pray? Lord God, we thank you so much for your love, that you have acted decisively to save sinners, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And Lord, that even now you act. And we ask that you would act in our day. That you would save our lost loved ones, our friends, our neighbors, our family. And that you would save this community. Lord, do it by your great power in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.